Missouri Republicans didn't used to fare so well in Jefferson County. Case in point, after filing close for the 2008 election cycle, three Democratic state representatives, Michael Frame, Sam Como, and Jeff Rorta, held a party at their Capitol office. They weren't celebrating the end of session, but rather how they were running unopposed for re-election. Flash forward to the present, and Jefferson County Democrats aren't exactly in a mood to celebrate. Frame, Como, and Rorta are long gone from the Missouri General Assembly. And with one exception, the GOP holds all of Jefferson County's legislative seats and controls the county executive's office. Donald Trump's 65 percent vote share solidified Republican dominance, leaving people like Senator Paul Whelan to wonder if the political shift was here to stay. I think years in the the future, let's say two years from now, I could see every Republican up and down the ballot winning, and they should win in Jefferson County, but they've got to work for it. And once we stop working for it, that's when you start seeing the Democrats come back because whoever works harder will win. It doesn't matter on party, whoever works hard. Democrats may have to hope Wheeland is wrong if they want to stay relevant in statewide politics. Back in 2012, every single statewide candidate that won a majority in Jefferson County went on to win their elections. That trend continued in 2016. If statewide office holders like Democratic U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill are going to win next year, they'll have to at least compete in places like Jefferson County. That could be why the two-term senator is spending lots of time in places where Trump did well last year. I think part of that is I feel that my party has been arrogant at times about listening and learning um, from people that live outside of reliably blue areas. Um, I think I have an obligation to show up and show respect places that I'm not very popular Um, It's a little bit of my work ethic and my determination to try to go everywhere. Um, The haters on Twitter say, oh, she only goes to places she's really popular. I'm going, I don't think you've looked at my schedule (laughs) because I've got a lot of places I'm not very popular. On this episode of the Politically Speaking podcast, we talk with Republican Representative Shane Roden of Cedar Hill about Jefferson County's rightward movement and whether it will continue for next year's critical election cycle. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens. Navy <laughs> SEAL is running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast, the only show about Missouri politics featuring two hosts that lived to tell about covering the battle for Jeffco in 2014. <laughs> I'm one of those uh, reporters slash editors, uh, Jason Rosenbaum, the interim politics editor for St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is Joe Manis, and I've lived to tell various uh, battles in Jeffco over the last 20 years. And, and a person that was part of that battle for Jeffco in 2014, although what I'm referring to is the Senate race. Uh, but was 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 instrumental in turning that county red we have as our guest today. Thank you very much, Shane Roten. Glad to be here. And uh, before we get into any questions about your background and issues, just tell the listeners uh, what district number you represent and what the boundaries are. So I, I represent Jefferson County's 111th district. It covers the northwest corner of Jefferson County, uh, pretty much everything south of the Merrimack River. 
everything uh, east of the Franklin County line down to Hillsborough and then back up into House Springs, uh, uh, Fenton area. Now, what do you do for a living when you're not a legislator? Well, uh, you know, one of those things that people don't realize is when you work for uh, the state of Missouri as a representative, you can't work for a taxi entity. So I actually had to give up. Uh, retired from my full-time job as a firefighter paramedic, and now I'm uh, in the private sector teaching uh, part-time on the side. Okay, so you what, teach uh, the paramedic or firefighter stuff? Just about anything. That, that's uh, anything from EMS-related classes. Uh, we, I do paramedic and EMT testing for a company uh, that all across the state that does the testing, the initial certification. So uh, I keep my, my hands in it uh, pretty good. I still volunteer a lot, so uh, I still carry a commission with the, the Camden County Sheriff's Office as deputy sheriff and one of their tactical mechs on the SWAT team and uh, still volunteers as a firefighter paramedic. So you must have really wanted to get into politics if you were willing to give up your full-time firefighter's job to do it. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to get into politics and make that change? Yeah, it was uh, actually the day after the 2012 election uh, when Mike Frame actually had won the district back. I watched Paul Kurtman come he in. He was a Democrat, yeah. just so people know. Yeah, he was a Democrat. Um, I, I watched Paul Kurtman in 2010 be kind of that sweep, and uh, I saw a, a, you know this young Marine come into Jefferson County, knock doors, worked his, his tail end off, basically, and uh, a Republican won in Jefferson County. It just kind of threw me for a loop that it can be done. And uh, after 2012, I, I just really wasn't thrilled about the options that I had representing me, and that's when I decided – it's 2014. I'm doing it. And uh talked to the wife and, you know, told her what uh, plans I had. And she just kind of went, OK, let's do it. So your 14 race, you know, other of your Republican Jefferson County colleagues won by pretty large margins. As I mentioned before, Senator Whelan beat Jeff Ward almost by 10 percentage points. And that was like a three or four million dollar race. Your race was actually pretty close. For for someone like Michael Frame, who has run in that district for a long time, he probably had the name recognition and he probably had the work ethic. And I know that there were some sharp elbows thrown over the air as well. Tell me what that general was like, because I think it was one of the more competitive state representative races, not only in the region, but probably the entire state. Well, I, you know, it was a uh, it was a tough race. I think we won by about five points on that race. And literally, it just mattered to who got out and knocked out doors more. I, I was the big underdog. I don't think even some of my party realized that I had potential of winning. And uh, it was just a it was a tough race to actually get to knock on doors and talk to people. And, and I really actually enjoyed it because I got to meet a lot of great people in this in this county that, uh, you know, really gives you hope. But, you know, when you're seeing from the law enforcement and fire and EMS, you usually see the, the bad in people or at their worst moments. And then I, I got out there and I, it's kind of a nice change to see people at their best moments and what we can really do better in this country. So, Has the um, whole fight over right to work this last session kind of affected your image or at least how you approach things or how others approach you? You know, uh, the, the downside is, one, because I have that R behind my name, a lot of people start throwing in that, you know, we're all conservative, we're all Republicans, and we're all uh, very – bunch of dirty SOBs from the union side of it, um, you know, that we all voted for us. And and so some of that having to, to get that message out there, look, I represented you like I told you I would. Um, you know, some just aren't well informed about how their representative actually voted for them. Because you voted against right to work, right? Multiple times. Now. Correct. I mean, that's why yeah. I brought it up. But continue. And so having to get that out there that some of them, it's like, okay, no, I actually did vote against this. You know, we're not all, don't loot. 
group everybody into that same uh, category. And then the other ones, it was also building my integrity back. You know, I told them this is where I was going to be on things. I stood my ground. I, I, I voted against it like I told them I would. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, I was a, I hate to use the word a politician. I was a statesman. I told them what I was going to do, and I did it. Was was there less pressure on you this year because you didn't need the veto-proof majority? And I guess the the caucus wranglers were like, well, if you don't want to vote for this, you don't have to, essentially. Well, or was there pressure? You know, I think there's always a little bit of pressure to t- come join the join the team, you know, jump on board with us. And the other side of it was, I think, again, after my first two years in office, people pretty much figured out when I tell you that I, I'm going to do something, I do it. And I don't change my word. I don't go around people's back. Um, it is what it is. And when I tell you that I can't do it because of my district and I'm going to vote the way my district wants me to, I think I made it very clear and obvious where my, my vote was going to be for 16. Now, going into eight, I mean, uh, 2018, there's going to be, there is expected to be an effort to try to move the date on when the right-to-work referendum would be on the ballot. I mean, for our listeners, the labor turned in a gazillion signatures. They're expected to have a referendum on the ballot in 2018. They had been planning on it being on in November, which some Democrats believe might help their um, candidates, uh, although there are Republicans like you. But... Um, now I'm, we've been hearing that there's going to be push early in the session because only the legislature can move the date of the referendum to try to get it on the August ballot instead for various reasons. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? What are you hearing and what would be your position on it? You know, I, I think it's a tactical move on both sides to try to get the dates changed. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, from an outsider's perspective looking in. Um, the union side has has come out in support of um, more usually the Democrat Party, and if you're hoping to hold on to a, a certain Senate seat in 2018, yeah, you want to try to get as many of those members out in the November election versus an August primary election. Uh, so both sides have their their advantages, and you know I could see that potentially taking shape just because of that. I, I could also see right to work being repealed in August too, because yeah. if it's the only major thing on the ballot, then it it's a pretty easy thing for organized labor to mobilize all their members to vote to effectively repeal it. Yeah. But wouldn't, would that possible? And there are, right now it doesn't look like there's any major, well, I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, but would there be ma- any major primaries that might be affected? You know, I don't know if there'd be any real major primaries affected by that, but I think that would be a, a, a wise area to kind of go towards. It, it benefits both parties, so to speak, in August if that, if that happens. Or are you fearful that Cortland Sykes might be your nominee then? I mean, Jeff Mazur has brought that up on, on Twitter, but, you know. <sighs> you know, I'm I'm going to just— uh, You're just not going to talk about Mr. Sykes right now. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's one of the Republican candidates for the U.S. Senate. I, I'm, I'm still highly disappointed that Paul Kurtman got out of that race. I, I, I really wish he would have uh, been able to mobilize on that one. But, oh, uh, on the Senate race? Yeah. And because, I mean, he is running for auditor. There may or may not be other Republicans get in, but— uh, You never know. You never know. But uh, we'll get back to politics near the end of the show. I do want to shift to policy a little yes. bit. Okay. Um, this is actually a, a real a real benefit to us and our listeners because this is one of the first times since the Stockley verdict we've had somebody with law enforcement experience 
on the show that could probably talk about any policy changes that come after that with a little bit more specificity. Now, but just remind me again of, of your experience in the law enforcement realm before I ask any questions. So I was, uh, I was always a full-time firefighter paramedic. Um, and back in, I, I was one of the first career firefighters out in Franklin County uh, back in 2003. And in December, I was hired a full-time department uh, where I'd volunteered. And in January that next year in 14, I decided I was going to do something stupid and go to the Sheriff's Academy. Oh, okay. And so uh, pretty much since uh, 2014, I've been, or 2004, I'm sorry, uh, I've been a reserve deputy in some capacity, um, either in Franklin County or in Camden County. So you're basically a law enforcement officer and a firefighter. Yeah, I get to make jokes on you both can, sides. You can carry both hats. I don't know how you wear both hats. But. You don't. You just get to hear the best jokes of all of them. <laughs> That's so. just amazing. I mean, I'll just ask you very simply, um, without getting into personalities or whatever, what do you kind of think of the protests that are going on right now? And as somebody with a law enforcement background, does it prompt you to think that maybe it could uh, compel the legislature to debate policies around law enforcement more seriously next year? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a tough situation we're dealing with because the reality is this, you know, this was an event that set off from 2011 due to a, a political grandstanding by a certain prosecuting attorney. Um, you know, we shouldn't have this shouldn't even been a, an issue in the first place. They've already had this issue uh, decided years ago, and now it's getting rehashed and brought back up. You know, it's beating a dead horse and digging it back up and trying to beat it some more. Um, so to sit here and have an argument, you know, a judge, the other side of it is we're basically, you know, I saw a lot of stuff out there, you know, convict them, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's the court of public opinion, and that's not how this country works. You know, that's why we have a jury trial, you're innocent until proven guilty. And these people already had him convicted and, and ready to hang him. And uh, I think that's one of the downsides that we need to be extremely careful about is that we don't start operating in that court of public opinion because all of a sudden truth and justice goes out the window. We I actually talked with uh, Stockley's attorney when the acquittal occurred. And the reasoning behind his acquittal was actually very reasonable. And I have to Recollected, it seems like it was a million years ago, even though it was only two months ago. But basically, because the the prosecutor could not prove that Stockley was not acting in self defense, then there was really no way he could be convicted of first degree murder. As in, the if there was a possibility Stockley was acting in self defense and they couldn't prove that he wasn't, then there is really no way he could be convicted. And I don't really think that's a legislative thing. I think that's a Oh, God, no. I, I mean, all of a sudden we want to take the burden of proof off the state of Missouri or, or off the courts. I, I mean, that goes back to the whole, I mean, the whole foundry of our Constitution in this country that, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. And it's up to the courts to, to, to actually prove that guilt, not to prove your innocence. Hmm. So at this point, do you see the General Assembly dealing with this on any level? And also, what are you hearing, let's say, from your constituents on other and others? how they view the protests, I mean, just kind of in general. Because that could have an effect. I mean, I, I look at everything through political eyes. Well, um, I, I can say that was probably one of the, the biggest things in 2014 that actually helped my election uh, was was the governor's mishandling of Ferguson. Uh, the people in Jefferson County, from the outside view, were mad. I, I mean, it was an absolute disgrace. This is what happens when politics get involved in law enforcement issues. And and that played out, I think, a little bit into my race as well. 
uh, people were not thrilled about what they're seeing, and they're still not. Um, the idea that um, you know that that law and order is supposed to be maintained it still holds true for those individuals out there, and um, you know they don't like the idea of you shutting down their their modes of transportation to and from, um, and and some of them were just getting downright violent and scary situations for these people and for motorists. So um, from a policy perspective, I know one of our representatives from St. Charles has already talked about increasing penalties for shutting down um, highways and interstates. You know, that's one of those things that um, I I agree with him that we need to have a little bit of a penalty. It, talking with uh, the Department of Public Safety as a whole, I didn't even realize that the most we could really come up with was a trespassing charge by MoDOT unless the city had an ordinance for shutting down a street. Um, so from that end of it, if we need to have something in place to keep people off of transportations, you know, you know your right to protest doesn't ends where it impedes my right to tr- safely transport myself to and from areas. And, and we talked about we saw multiple times where you're blocking ambulances and everybody else, you know, emergency vehicles to get to places. we got to put a stop to that. That's, that's not what the, you know, if you want to protest, do it peacefully, do it, do it right. But shutting down highways is not the the way to get answers. And I think it's actually backfiring for a lot of them. Um, you know, they're getting the negative side of it. People are just fed up and tired of it. I, I do want to bring up this point from uh, David Klinger, who is a criminology professor at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And I want to just be clear to both our guests and our listeners. He is not in favor of passing a lot of laws to change how law enforcement does its job. He's actually a former police officer, and he's been studying officer-involved shootings for his research for many years. In his opinion, and and you're right, this is a situation that happened in 2011, so a lot has probably changed. I don't want to say probably has changed in the way police officers are trained. But his opinion is that there does need to be an emphasis on better police tactics and training, and I'm going to let him elaborate in the sound clip. You know, for example, the Jason Stockley shooting, which has led to the most uh, recent protests. If you think about it, Um, from just the tactics, why in the world are two police officers running up on the passenger side of a vehicle where they believe an individual has a gun? It's not good tactics. Unfortunately, a lot of police officers around this region and indeed all over the country do it every day because nobody is debriefing them. Nobody is holding them accountable to basic training. And I don't want to get into the fine-grained details of it, but if um, I was in the car with uh, either of those two officers, what I would have done is I would have ensured that we both stayed back at the patrol car uh, with our guns drawn, waiting for other units to show up, and then order um, the suspect out. If he comes out with a gun and he points it in our direction or threatens us, he gets shot. And then the video is very, very different from the video that had so many people outraged. So I don't really want to relitigate the Stockley situation, but I do want to ask as somebody who went through law enforcement training, probably in the sheriff's capacity, is that the type of thing that you're taught at the academy, or is that something that you're being taught now through your like post certification training? Um, and is is that is tactical excellence something that's being emphasized when when officers are being trained? You know, we're we're getting to the point now where we're being over taught on some of the other stuff, and we're and then tactics are almost going to the wayside. Um, and that's kind of one of the scary statistics that are showing out there. A lot of these larger city departments are talking about de-escalating training and everything else. Well, when they found out when they started teaching all this de-escalation training, officers were hesitant to use their their weapons or, or the next level of force. 
and uh, suspect um, incidents went up. The the actual um, injuries to both officers and the in the citizens went up versus uh, going down. It actually had a negative effect on some of these places. Um, the other side of it to this is this is Monday morning quarterback, and, and I I don't agree with that at once. I'm not gonna sit here and, and sit here and second guess an officer that made a split second decision. Um, you know, sitting after a, a vehicle of chase, you know, your adrenaline's going. Um, that's what so many people have. You know, hundred years to, to sit here and decide on whether you did the right or wrong thing afterwards. That we weren't there, and that's the hardest thing for me to to kind of sit here and go back mm-hmm. to is, uh, you know, I don't. Nobody wants to be that officer to have to pull their gun and, and pull that trigger. Uh, that nobody woke up that morning and decided, you know, I want to go shoot somebody. Um, and, and if there are, we're gonna start shooting. You know, we're gonna we're gonna look them out and we're gonna try to get rid of them out of the police force, but. Um, it just really scares me to sec- morning, sec- morning, bleh, Monday morning quarterback them on those issues. Well, without talking about a specific case, I mean, because I think uh, the professor there was just talking more broadly. But do you think the General Assembly might be dealing more with, like, as far as trying to find more money for body cameras or or police car cameras? Or do you think that's that's not even necessary? Well, you want to start talking about let's get to the root of the problem right now. The state minimum pay for a deputy sheriff in the state of Missouri with assistance is $29,000. Okay. $29,000. How do you live off of that as a family when in certain areas? Good point. And, and you can't. You, you can't. And on top of that, we saw an, a large increase in 2008, 2009 in, in the academies when construction started going down. All these people that were making money all of a sudden went to the academy. We got, you know, our academies were full. But now look at where we're at. We got Highway Patrol that can't even fill classes right now um, because nobody wants to go into the public sector and law enforcement. Jefferson County is down officers, and they're having a hard time keeping officers because now St. Louis County is paying better. Um, so when you look at it as a whole, your quality of individuals has gone down because we don't pay anything. And in this day and age, who wants to be a cop? I mean, your second guess, your you're almost demonized in in some parts of the the area, and uh, you know, it's a it's a tough profession right now. I, I'm lucky, the the community that I serve in right now is very supportive. Um, we and it's kind of nice to see that. But uh, when you start demoralizing officers in certain counties, it's hard to go out and do a good job. And part of that comes back. You know, I think we're seeing some of the negative aspects from like Senate Bill Five. Um, you know, I, I I supported it. I think the taxation by citation was wrong. Um, the downside to it, though, is that we're seeing is law enforcement officers stop doing traffic stops. You know, they they stop. Well, it's not going to matter. You know, why keep running traffic or why keep enforcing law? So we saw issues of you know some of the minor crimes going up, and and that kind of stems to partially probably some of the issues we see in St. Louis County where mm-hmm. there's a rise in. In crime. So. Has, has that affected Jefferson County very much? Because it, it was always a 20% cap. And I know that there were some cities, including some in your district, which were out of control. Barnes Mill? Barnes Mill. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I pronounced that name right. But, I mean, that was the, the, that was the one city I thought of off, off the top of my head. So it, 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 by under state law, it was actually 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a little right. known, little known thing that it actually stems from uh, a city called Max Creek, who is no longer a city in Camden yes. County. Yes. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I happen to know Creek. real well about Max Creek, and uh, and we have a little town in Burns Mill that uh, you know we have a new police chief down there that has has had to work for the last couple of years a really 
bringing that name back and, and trying to get that reputable that that I that image back up for them, and they're having a hard time because residents still remember, and they were affected. They were they were going to have to take out some of their budget down to to twenty percent, and you know it's just one of those that we have to ask ourselves: Does a fifth of your budget really need to come from traffic stops? Mm-hmm. And and you know I told the mayor one night she was complaining about it, and I'm like, you know, when you see a black vehicle completely blacked out sitting on the side of the road. You're there for one reason, one reason only, and that's right, t- traffic tickets. Mm-hmm. And from a law enforcement aspect, I sat there, and the idea of running traffic is to get people to slow down, mm-hmm. to, to actually follow the law. And a marked vehicle on the side of the road will get people to slow down faster than somebody sitting yeah. blacked out at night yes, I know writing tickets. So I do want to shift gears a little bit to um, what has been in the news nationally and statewide, which is the – I don't want to call it the opioid epidemic, um, but – the opioid problem. The opioid problem, which has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years. Um, we've had guests before from Franklin County and St. Charles County who have said that it's a big issue and it corresponds with the rise of heroin use. Before I just assume that it's a problem in Jefferson County, as somebody who represents Jefferson County and is in the uh, firefighter law enforcement space, what what's kind of your, your read on how this has affected Jefferson County? You know, it's still been a problem. It's no worse than the methamphetamine problem that we had. You know, we we, we kind of we enacted laws and certain things to kind of go after methamphetamine production, and we saw a decrease in one and an increase in the other. And, uh, you know, I think it's some correlation that we see over time. The the downside, I really don't – I'm hesitant to call it an, an epidemic as well because when you start looking at um, – you know, I, I use the, the – to talk about are the numbers from Franklin County. Last year, there was nine heroin overdoses, um, fatal overdoses in, in Franklin County last year. Um, while I, I feel for the families that are going through those struggles, nine out of 100,000 population is not an epidemic. Uh, we it's, it's getting a lot of attention, but still, you know, cardiovascular issues are still the number one leading cause of death in Americans, followed by cancer and you can go down the list of traumas and everything else under the sun. Our drunk driving. Our drunk driving. And, and, you know, when you have more fatalities from drunk driving uh, versus the opiates overdoses, where do we start putting our resources into what's actually affecting? I, I want to play a clip now from from Steve Elman. And I was talking... Just for our listeners know, he's a St. Charles County executive. He's the actually the senior uh, county executive in the region now. He's a Republican. And... um the point that he was making was there is probably a public policy uh, element to this, but he also thinks that there needs to be an educational element, especially to young people in these suburban communities. I'm going to play this clip right now. As you know, we've joined with St. Louis County and the city to do the uh, PDMP, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. But you're right. To, to another part of that, of course, is attacking the source, uh, the drugs, and of course, the people who create the market. And yes, I have been told that uh, most of the drug dealers don't come out to St. Charles, but the kids and others in St. Charles are actually coming to the city and the county to purchase drugs. And we are doing everything we can in our schools to educate them as to the problems, all the deaths from overdoses, all the all the all the problems with that and uh, you know we'll continue to do what we can in that regard the reason i'm playing this clip is it really crystallized to me what the issue here is i've heard talk about 
increasing penalties for, for drug dealers next year. And I've also obviously followed the PDMP situation. But as long as especially young people have, for whatever reason, a desire to buy and use heroin, there's always going to be a market for it. And there probably needs to be both within schools and just within individual families, just talks about why that's not a good idea. That may be a more impactful thing than anything the legislature can do. That's that's my observation. I'd be interested to hear your take on that. You know, I I, I tend to agree with you on that one. Uh, it's we we can create all the laws we want up in Jeff City, um, but you can't uh, regulate mortality and and, and morality. Uh, morality. Yeah, morality. And uh, and it just one of those things. I, I you know, how do you start actually getting to the underlying problem of why they're doing it in the first place? You know, we can keep creating laws, but it doesn't do any good. I mean, you can sit here and look and see that it obviously isn't doing anything good. But uh, I think with the uh, stronger educational side of it, we can see things, you know, like teen pregnancies. You know, I could think back 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, it, was, it was, wasn't uncommon to see, you know, teen pregnancy, unwanted teen pregnancies go up. And with education, we've managed to, to bring that back down. Well, yeah, edu- education and birth control. But, it, but in fact, it's not. It, it's at the lowest that it's been in decades. Yeah. So so there's other options out there. Um, the, the PDMP, if it worked in 49 other states, Missouri would have the highest death rates out of everybody else. It, it is the, the biggest malarkey that I've ever heard and sold to us, and it's the biggest waste of taxpayers' money that could have ever gone somewhere else to actually help these people. Um, you know, less. I think one of the the federal studies I just saw a couple months ago, less than four percent of people who are addicted to pain medication actually make the switch to heroin and overdose along those lines. So, when we start talking about the big scheme of the problems, it's it's nil. I, I would assume that the reason, why especially young people, do heroin is because maybe their friends are doing it. It's or the it, same reason why they did pot in the 60s and 70s. It's why they've been drinking pot since the dawn wasn't of time. More, I mean, I'm from that age. <laughs> pot, at least you were – it was rare for you to die from it. I mean, yeah. I mean that's a whole different – Yeah, and, and again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not advocating like – I'm not taking a position one way or the other about what the penalties should be. I'm just saying like sometimes people make the link between opioids and heroin and think that's the only reason. There are probably more social reasons why people get addicted to heroin that have nothing to do with opioids. Well, and like, yeah, and there's kind of a separate thing. One of the big reasons that there's a big focus on the whole opioid issue, fair or unfair, is because a lot of the deaths, not all of them, but a decent percentage, uh, this is affecting middle-aged white Americans especially, in their 50, 40s and 50s. I mean, that's where you're seeing a lot of it. I mean, hey, Rush Limbaugh had a problem about a decade ago. I mean, that, you know, they're, they're prescribed it for some sort of chronic pain, and then it gets sort of out of hand and um, because of the addictive qualities. And, and they're seeing now that actually death rates in those age groups are going up, and they're tying it to that. Fair or unfair? I mean, well, what, are, what, are, what are you seeing from, from your line of work? So from the medical side of it, look back at what we've done over the last 10 years or 15 years of how we treat patients. If you complain to the doctor and you don't get a medication, you're mad at the doctor because you didn't get something to help your pain. And so doctors got to the point where they're almost forced when they start tying into funding and patient survey and satisfaction surveys, that they're almost forced to give these individuals pain medications. Tell people, instead of telling people, suck it up, you know, deal with a little, little bit of 
back pain for a little bit, you know, or, you know, it'll go over, try some of the uh, other medications, non-opiate medications. People didn't like those answers. And so, or, you know, God forbid that they actually do a little thing like work out and become a little bit stronger in their back and fix other problems. They wanted a, a, med- a pill to fix all that. And, and now we're to this point where you go to the doctor and, and if you don't get an antibiotic for a cold, you're, you're mad because the doctor didn't give you an, well, now we have antibiotic strains that are, you know, resistant to medication and we're going down this whole, whole slew of problems. So it, it's a problem that we've really created for ourselves when it comes to that aspect. The other side of it, um, you know, I, 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 I kind of find it a little humorous that there are some that we, we sit here and talk about the opiate epidemic, but we don't want to address the, the fact that there's medical marijuana out there available. Um, you know, it's one Right of now things, it's illegal in Missouri. Right now it's illegal in the state of Missouri, and if we want to start fighting some of these, these pain addiction problems, um, you know, how do you sit here and tell grandma who's got chronic back pain, who's, you know, 80 or 90 years old with chronic back pain that I'm not rushed because you smoked a doobie today? I mean— I, I mean, there's, there's, are, are, are you advocating giving grandma a, a marijuana? I'm, I'm teasing, it, obviously. But. If, I know. If, I'm if, not. It, if it means that she has a better quality of life than being all doped up on Percocet and Oxy and everything else under the sun, you know what? As long as she's not going to be operating motor vehicles and she's got to be happy, people going through chemo treatment, if anybody's ever watched a loved one go through that, that's horrible. Watching my dad go through chemo treatment and everything else um, and then not be able to eat and go through those issues. Uh, you know, if if marijuana in any form helps them with that issue, why are we? Why is this even an issue? I mean, it's now. There's about two dozen different initiative petitions that were filed. Uh, I mean, filed over the course of this this year to try to get something on the ballot next year. There's at least two that they they are actively trying to get signatures for, and one in particular which has a lot of money behind it, which is New Approach Missouri. I've written a lot about this, and not just in Missouri, but also the medicinal program that's underway in Illinois and the one that's being uh, has been approved by voters and is now in the process in Arkansas. So looking at um, what you've seen in the General Assembly, do, do you think there might be any sort of legislative action maybe to uh, – there have been cases where the General Assembly has acted on an issue – because there was an initial petition, and they tried to come up with a better law and on whatever issue it was. And so in this case, might they tackle it? Or are they going to wait to see what gets on the ballot? And just kind of what are you hearing from your constituents? Um, you know, that was one of the interesting things. That when I first got elected, that was one of the questions I sent out on a survey to, to kind of get an idea of where people stood on it. And I figured it's almost a libertarian mindset out there. They want to live their lives, and they want government to go away and just – you know, when I need you, I'll give you a call type. <laughs> uh, that, that's really a, a good portion of Jefferson Countyans. Um, so I, I, I kind of wondered where there was going to be at. And one of the things I had that was kind of interesting, uh, my first question was, would you decriminalize medical marijuana? And overwhelmingly, 75% of the surveys sent back, both online and paper, so kind of get an idea of both younger older generation mm-hmm. unanimously it was about 75% 75% in 70- Jeffco yeah one said you know what for medical pro- purposes sure but then the very next question was about decriminalizing recreational marijuana and, and it dropped it, to 2% or something like it that it did a 180 switch and it was 25% mm-hmm. approved and 75% didn't want it understood so i mean to, to sit here and give you an idea i mean that's where we've kind of got to the point where i i, I was I was awestruck, to be honest with you, because I, I couldn't believe it that 
it was actually that high of a number and that big of a turnaround between medical and recreational. So do you think the legislature might act? Because I, I can see that the the reasoning for the ballot initiative, because there, there may be fearful that there won't be any action. But I could also see the legislature looking at New Approach Missouri and being like, wait a second, I don't want to use the proceeds just for veterans. I want to put it into general revenue or I want to use it for education or I want to use it for roads. Could that be a, an impetus for action, so to speak? You know, I think that's one of the, the downsides that we've kind of seen with some of the uh, initiative petitions over the past is if the General Assembly doesn't um, fix the issues, some of the stuff that gets written up is maybe not the greatest and should and has challenges to overcome later on and we're having to fix more problems. Not that we don't create our own problems in the legislative problem that we have to go back and fix next year, but – uh, I think it's just even worse if it's an initiative petition um, to go that route. So I, it almost forces us to to do something, and maybe this year will be it. I don't know. We'll have to see. Just as kind of a to, to wrap things up a little bit, um, you'll be. I assume you'll be running for a third term next year. First of all, I will be. How does the environment look for Republicans in Jefferson County? Because I, I played a clip at the beginning of the show of Paul Whelan basically saying, "I'm hoping that Republicans win everything." But we have to work hard. And if we get complacent and think that we're just going to rule forever, that's when the Democrats could strike back, especially when there's a U.S. Senate race where Jefferson County might become, pardon my cliche, Joe, but a, a battleground as it, it usually <laughs> does. But I'm interested to hear your take of what, what you see the environment next You know, I, one, I think that's part of what's wrong with our politics is it's an R.D. thing. Yeah, I, I really think we need to start electing the best people for the job to do what's right and get the job done correctly. Um, now, whether that that means, and it's got to go against the political norms here, uh, whether that means putting a local candidate who happens to be better for the job just because he put a D and seven R behind his name that day. Um, you know, I, I'm looking for a person to do the right thing in office. Um, and I, that's a tough pill for some of my colleagues as well, but it really should be about the best elected candidate. Um, but I think if we're going to do it, we're going to have to find on the Republican side the best candidates for the job. Now, um, for the U.S. Senate race, how important do you think Jefferson County will be? Because one of the things I've noticed is there hasn't been a statewide candidate in a long time who has lost Jefferson County and then won an election. Correct. And I, I think uh, last cycle, since all Republicans won statewide and they won Jefferson County by a lot, they all won. But it was the same in 2012, too, where Nixon won, Kander won. And Zweifel won, too. I think a lot of people are seeing that. If you Emma don't, McCaskill. Emma McCaskill. If you don't win Jefferson County, you don't win the state. Yeah. So and it's sort of like the bellwether. I mean, Missouri sort of still is, but used to be one of the national bellwethers. Within Missouri, Jefferson County is one, arguably one of two or three bellwethers in the state. So um, what are you seeing? I mean, what are – I mean, are people still with – Let's say, I mean, will there be a Trump effect in 2018 or are people going to be looking directly at the candidates? Are there certain things that you're hearing as far as Hawley or just Republicans in general or McCaskill? I think people right now are more worried about how I can get on family vacation. I got Thanksgiving coming up in three weeks and Christmas is not too far behind. Uh, I think the normal this person. Is good. This, this is good. The, the normal person doesn't give a rat's butt until <laughs> next year. Uh, I mean, let's put it plain. 
It is what it is. You I, get you get what you get with me. Um, th- th- this is the, this is one of the best no, answers we've ever had to a question on this show. Absolutely, because <laughs> but actually, it's true. It's, it's true. true. You know, we're, we're, continue. Yeah, they're, they're worried about food on the table. What's for dinner tonight? And and being able to pay mortgage right now. They're they're not concerned. And I think as long as all is well, um, you know, and the Republicans keep doing a, a putting out a good product, they're going to continue to buy that product. Um, if Depending on how things go next year, early year with with Trump and the administration, um, if they don't start getting some of those health care issues fixed, um, people are going to the, the tried and true conservative base is going to get tired, and you know that's going to spell another issue for incumbents again. I think that's where you got to see the issue um, is, is where it's going to fall on the incumbents. So for all of our stories, that's tillpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Um, do you have a Twitter account? I am. Rep Roden 111. Uh, 111. Yep. 111 District. Well, I think it's pretty easy to remember. Yep. And until next time, so long. <laughs>